what to do. I'm like, well, that's what submarine commanders do. So I'm starting to give orders. And one of the very first orders I give, I gave was an impossible order. It was asking the officer to shift into second gear on an engine that only had one gear. And I looked at the officer and said, hey, Bill, why did you order this? He says, because you told me to. I'm like, did you know? Yes, it didn't make any sense. And so what did I do? I wanted to do what everyone else had done before me. Oh, gather the team. You're empowered. You speak up. Problem is, unless you start start leaning back and shut up, there's no space for them to tell you. So the code word for us was the word intent. They would say, here, Captain, I intend to, and then they would lay it out. I intend to submerge the ship. I've checked the water depth. The hatches are shut. All personnel below, et cetera. And why we're doing it. Yo, Ryan Hartley here from Always Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to the interview sessions where I put my curious questions to inspiring and successful people. And I have one simple hope that the next 40 minutes helps you in your heart and in your mind in some way, in your leadership and in your mindset in some way. I'm Ryan Hartley. I'm a heart and mind coach from England and I'm all about helping create a world that is always better than yesterday. And I think the best way that I can do that is to help people like you and I lead with love and serve with purpose. Because I think when leaders get better, families get better, communities get better, workplaces get better. Um, So that is what this podcast is all about. And I am honoured and privileged to be bringing Captain David Marquet on to episode 105 of the interview sessions. Uh, you'll hear a bit about the the how I came across uh, David's books uh, in, in the introduction of, of the podcast, but it's safe to say that his books are incredible. Turn the Ship Around and his new book, Leadership is Language. You'll know if you've listened to me long enough that Always Better Than Yesterday wouldn't be the way that it is if I hadn't have listened to Simon Sinek's TED Talk. The foreword on Turn the Ship Around is that David Marquet is the kind of leader who comes around only once in a generation. His ideas and lessons are invaluable. That was the words of Simon Sinek. It's funny how the world works. This podcast, maybe this business and organization wouldn't exist if I hadn't had the curiosity to find my why after listening to Simon Sinek. And here we are um, about to have Captain David Marquet. Um, I hope that you really enjoy the next 40 minutes. Really soak it in, really listen to the heart and the mind and the message of, that um, that is shared. If you're looking for a community of like-hearted, like-minded people to grow with, search us out on Facebook. We are always better than yesterday. We're a community of nearly 600 people from all around the world and we come together to help each other learn and grow and be always better than yesterday. Appreciate you pushing play. Appreciate you taking the time and spending it here with us in the Always Better Than Yesterday community. Enjoy the next 40 minutes with Captain David Marquet. Always love. These interview sessions are brought to you by our great friends at Web Creation. Head to webcreationgroup.com for stunning websites at sensible prices. 
David, welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday interview sessions. It is an honor and a privilege to have you. I first came across your your first book probably about five years ago when I was when I was at the police. Um, I was uh, put on a project to try and turn and transform the culture around of its control room, the place where we used to take 999 calls. Um, and I came across this wonderful gem of a book called Turn the Ship Around. I've been absolutely fascinated by your story, the, the lessons that you teach. And obviously, recently, you have just published Leadership is Language. So these are the two great pieces of work that I'd love to pick your heart and your mind about. But first and foremost, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Welcome, all listeners. Thank you. I'd love to know why you started your TEDx talk with a confession. Well, so first of all, that was like my first speech, and I was super, super, super nervous. I didn't have a book out, but Simon Sinek, I'd, uh, I'd gotten to be friends with Simon uh, through some just serendipitous connections, and he was set, putting on this TED talk. So I think you have to be really honest with people. And I think deep down, a lot of us like to be in control. And so we have to admit that. And I can tell you, for me, I like being in control. I liked issuing orders. I liked seeing the team respond. I had a certain satisfaction from people lining up to see me so I could make orders. Uh, and make decisions. And I was generally pretty good at that and I kept getting rewarded. So I have had, not only did I have this extrinsic reward system reinforcing that, but I had an intrinsic system. And I think we just have to be really honest about that. One of the first activities we give to our executive teams when we do cultural uh, initiatives is we tell them they have to practice giving up control. So for example, go to dinner, don't order, get the server to pick for you. Uh, have someone pick the next book that you read, have someone pick drive instead of use, have someone load the dishwasher if you're the person who normally, but it's gotta be something like, like really gets you right in the gut. Like, oh my gosh, no, no, that's my thing. I can't give up control about, oh my gosh, then what we're gonna watch this evening. And you got to practice that because I want people to deal with how that feels. And the other thing is you got to make it safe for the other person to make a decision for you. And these are the two, these are the two key practices. And it's fun because you can do it at home and it's not a big deal and uh, consequences are low. But if you're not feeling that tinge of anxiety, but at the same time, excitement that you might get something new and different, then you're not, I don't think you're really doing leadership. You're just doing bossing people around or whatever. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, we'll touch on your background and, and, and your, your, your story, but um, this sense of leadership being hierarchical, positional, but like I've experienced through the police, I, I imagine was what you grew up learning through your, your leadership schooling through the, uh, the Navy. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with hierarchy. I think it's very difficult to organize humans in a way that doesn't involve hierarchy. Even mm. teams that say they're self-organized are only self-organized to a certain extent. There's still hierarchy uh, within, those, within those organizations. There's hierarchies of teams or squads or circles or whatever you want to call them. There's still hierarchy, but we can do... The problem is the way we use hierarchy, and we use hierarchy... I think 
based on an industrial age model. And in two ways, it can be improved. Number one, the primary communication pattern in a hierarchy today is direction going down and reporting coming up. And so we use this phrase even, I've even heard it. These are, oh, these are my direct reports. I have six direct reports. What does that mean? I direct and they report. I mean, it's pretty clear, <laughs> right? So, so I appreciate the honesty in that labeling. Uh, so that, that's the first problem. What we say is rather than pushing, uh, and so what we have to do is create a network, an information gathering network, which channels what the nodes of the the interface, uh, the people at the interface of the organization, interface with the client, interface with the code, interface with the airplane, interface with the patient, whatever. They're at the interface, so they have to channel information up to some authority node, and then the decision comes back. And what we're saying, so that's number one. So what you want to do is take the authority for making decisions and push it to the people at the interface. But we say push the authority to information. That's number one. Number two, we, so leadership, so leadership and followership. Followership is embedded in leadership. Unfortunately, what most people think is followership means you follow me mm. and I follow my boss. So it's, not so this is a feudal system it's about pledging fealty to someone above you and and doing what you're told unfortunately this is useless because you can't make decisions you're not making decisions based on principles you're making decisions on what would jack want mm. which is not a good way to make decisions and what about the top person well they don't have any loyalty they just they just run willy willy nilly so what you want is everyone follows the principles and the values of the organization, but is a leader in the sense that they're determining the best way to do that. And so that's the way you want to use hierarchy as opposed to this follow the leader. So in other words, instead of it's instead of why, it's who. Mm. I'd love to hear some of the story of where all your learnings around the leader leader model have come from where did you hone your craft so uh, i was in the navy and i was really good at telling people what to do and i uh, i was getting promoted because i was good at telling people what to do and i generally could see the right right answer and i viewed myself as a decision maker my uh, my essence of leadership was making good decisions and I received good news. I was going to be a submarine commander and they pulled me out of my job. So for 12 months, a whole year, I was training to take over this one submarine. At the very last minute, they said, no, 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 we got to send you to the Santa Fe instead. I'm like, no, not the Santa Fe. I put my head down. I like literally fell into a fetal position on the floor <laughs> because the Santa Fe, everyone knew it was a joke. It was the worst submarine. It had the worst morale and the worst performance. And, this, and the captain, who was supposed to be there another year, abruptly quit. And so the Navy said, well, we can just leave the person on the original submarine there, they're, they're fine, but you're, we need someone to take Santa Fe. Mm. And the problem was not poor morale, poor performance. I'd always, I'd been there before, I'd turned organizations around, what? But I'd always been the decision maker. I knew all the answers. And I said, no, no, don't do this, do that. Of course, when I left, things would regress to the mean, but that didn't matter. That was just me, more evidence about how important <laughs> I was. In any event, uh, so we go to the Santa Fe 
And it's a different shape. Of course, I know, like cognitively, I know it. But emotionally, we fall into the pattern. Like the crew's looking at me, like, tell us what to do. And I'm like, well, that's what submarine commanders do. So I'm starting to give orders. And one of the very first orders I give, I gave was an impossible order. It was, it was, it was trivial. It was asking the officer to shift into second gear on an engine that only had one gear. And when he ordered it and the crewman kind of did this quizzical, what the F look back to the two of us. <laughs> and it came out that the, because the newest sub Santa Fe, one of the newest submarines, the engines only had, they had simplified the motor anyway. And I looked at the officer and said, Hey, Bill, why did you order this? He says, because you told me to, and he gives me this really annoying grin. And I'm like, did you know? Yes. It didn't make any sense. And so what did I do? I wanted to do what everyone else had done before me. Oh, gather the team. You're empowered. You speak up, which of course we'd already done. Like, if you think it's a bad order, you tell me. You, we, we all say that. It has no impact. It's a waste of time. The problem is, unless you start, start leaning back and shut up, there's no space for them to tell you. You're, when you tell them what to do and say, now tell me if it's bad, you just made it a lot harder. What you want to do is lean back and say, well, what would you do? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna reveal what I would do because I don't, I'm not, you're the right guy to make the decision here. So the code word for us was the word intent. They would say, here, Captain, I intend to, and then they would lay it out. Not the whole conversation. The whole conversation consisted of a lot more. Mm -hmm. What are why it's safe? I intend to submerge the ship. I've checked the water depth, the hatches are shut, all personnel below, etc and why we're doing it. Those are the two things they needed, two boxes they needed to check. And if they did that sufficiently, I would just nod or say very well, and they would be off to the races. I was not, uh, so I was the decision evaluator in this, at this point, but not the decision maker. My, my real aha moment was the problem isn't I made a bad decision. The problem is I'm the one Structurally speaking, I'm the one making decisions and I got to get out of the decision making mode. So I stopped, started thinking about my job as creating a decision making factory. Mm. Mm, I love that. And um, your legacy far outlived the, the time on ship. And I know that people have gone on and the numbers kind of speak for themselves, but is it more than just your words? Is it, what else, what would you pay tribute to? It's your words. It's how we talk to each other, plain and simple. It's no more complicated than that. Mm. We, we had the same resources as every other submarine. We are people into the same school. We have the same talent. The Navy has a program where they deliberately level the talent. If one submarine seems like they have higher talent, they'll mm. not doing better, but just if they have higher talent, they'll start sending the next person who at the bottom of the class is your next officer is going to be lower mm. and vice versa. I mean, it's this incredible experiment where you take 50 things as identical as, as 50 different organizations can be. And there's dramatic factors of order of magnitude 10 difference in performance, but that's not the whole story. I mean, that's not, that's not the reason I wrote the book because we've seen that story. And I could have had that story just being the decision maker had I known the submarine. What 
the real story is over the next 10 years, more officers became submarine commanders from this one crew than, than ever. And than anyone has ever known in the history of the Navy. And that's the difference. It's you're creating leaders because you're treating people like leaders. You're asking them to think, you're inviting them into the thinking space. And so it's natural for the organization to say, oh, these guys think like leaders, we'll make them leaders. Mm. Stephen Covey uh, said that he experienced the most empowering organization he's ever seen. What did he experience? Oh, yeah, such a wonderful day with Stephen Covey. It was amazing. I was a huge fan. I read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And here's a dirty little secret. What I was doing was taking seven, seven habits of highly effective people and applying it at the organizational level. And I just kept asking the same question over and over again. What would it sound like if? What would it sound like if? Well, so habit one, be proactive. What would it sound like if we were all acting mm. proactively? Not what would it what would it feel like or mm. what would the policy document be or what poster should we hang up? It was like, how would the meetings sound? What words would come out of people's mouths? And so we just sort of created this, uh, these little scripts. And I said, this is perfect. Now go practice this. Just say these words. Mm. And what happens? When you say the words, you're acting proactively. And a few months later, there's the, it, it bakes into your brain. And we just, we just did that for each, everything that we could do. And so anyway, so Dr. Covey came. It was a beautiful day. We picked him up on, we were in Hawaii. It's crystal clear water. It's a crystal clear day. I remember we could see the tops of Mauna Loa hundred miles away. Uh, a little snow glistening over there and on the big island. And, it, and he watched the crew all day long. They're coming up to me saying, Captain, I intend to do this. Captain, I intend to do this. I intend to submerge. I intend to get underway. I intend to enter port. And I was just, maybe I'd ask a question and confirm we were on track and and he finally says, and he's kind of quiet and I'm kind of nervous about the whole thing because like, this is my, like, I'm idolized this man. And he finally looks at me and says, I, I, now I figured out what's going on here. I was like, oh, okay, that's good. Please tell me because I'm, <laughs> it felt very muddled for us. I mean, I knew I had this sense of language and I was, knew mm. what I was trying to do. And, it, and he said, here's what I see. When it, everyone is inviting someone to the next higher level of thinking, and it happens through language. So when someone comes and says, tell me what to do, I never heard anyone say, do this. What I heard at all levels in the crew was, oh, tell me about that. Tell me more. Mm. What do you see? What do you know about this situation that I don't know? And then the person would start describing it, des description. And then they say, well, mm. why is that happening? What do, you, what do you think's the root cause? Well, the bearing's going bad. Okay, well, what, what should we do? What would you do if I weren't here? What would you do if you were there? And so in this sort of language-based way, we would just invite people up this ladder. And I was like, yeah, that's it. So we wrote it down and this became like our big tool, the ladder version. Mm, I love that. A lot of um, your book, Leadership is Language, is structured on this, this red work, blue work infrastructure and, and, a, and a new playbook. I'd love to know how you've taken your understanding of language and then really created a framework with which organizations can use. Yeah, language is so powerful. We, we think it's a one-way street. 
we decide what words to say and there's no feedback loop. But it turns out that the fundamental structures of the language have tremendous influence over mm -hmm. our thinking and how we interact with people. So a bridge in German, which is masculine, is more often described as strong or effective, whereas a bridge in Italian, which is feminine, it's either Italian or Spanish, can't remember right now, but is, is more likely to be described as beautiful or elegant, or these, these mm -hmm. kind of words. So, and we have these language patterns that we don't realize we use. This is the problem. We're just yep. repeating inherited language from the industrial age. Does that make sense? Right? So these are these two little phrases are designed to do what? They're to get people to go along. Why? Because in the industrial age, leadership was about the or in the industrial age construct was we we're going to separate the two functions of living into which are thinking and doing mm -hmm. by role. So in an organization, we have the doing, that's the actual work, that's running the assembly line, that's writing code, flying an airplane, doing whatever. And then there's the thinking, which is making decisions about the doing and improving the doing and that kind of thing, but it's not the actual work. And in the industrial age, we said, okay, great. You people will do the doing and we're gonna call you uh, blue collar and we're gonna pay you by the hour and you're gonna wear a certain uniform and you might be in a union and that kind of thing. And you probably didn't go to university. And then these people, they're gonna be the thinkers. They're gonna make the decisions for you. And we're gonna call them white collar and they're gonna wear a different uniform than you. So we can identify them in the factory floor and they probably went to university and blah, blah, blah. And so we separated the world into two groups. Mm -hmm. We call them leaders and followers. And the idea with the followers was to do what the leaders told the followers what to do. Now this, I don't think, is the best way to organize highly effective teams. And highly effective teams, we let the people doing the work make decisions about the work. This is not the industrial age model. So, mm. and the way it happens is through language because the, the language of doing is different than the language of thinking. How so? The language of doing is about focus and compliance and about excluding external distractions. When I'm coding, when I'm writing, when I'm operating my machinery, I don't want to be like, huh, what? And then boom, I lock my finger. When I'm <laughs> flying an airplane. I want focus on that. And when the surgeon's operating on me, I want focus. But now apply that to a meeting where we're going to make a decision. And we say, oh, does that make sense? What did I just do? I just reduced variability. I made it harder for people who think differently to speak up. I'm doing the same thing. I'm excluding variability. Variability is an ally, though, to thinking and decision-making. So the language needs to be different. It needs to be, what doesn't make sense? What am I missing? Not blah, 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 right? So we're good to launch a product next week, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about the language of curiosity and vulnerability. What does the language of curiosity and vulnerability sound like? So the thing that's really interesting is the moment that someone says something to you, let's say you're the boss and they come up to you and they, you, you've got intent-based leadership going and say, Hey boss, 
I intend to delay the product launch next week. And you're, and, and it's just immediately alarm bells or, and you're like, no, that's wrong in your head. Why would you want to do that? We've done all this testing, mm. blah, blah, blah. We've been working on this for a year. We made a public announcement that it's coming out. And at that moment, what I see most people do and what I had a tendency to do was either to say, no, that's wrong, or explain why that's wrong, or maybe ask some mm. annoying questions like, well, did you think about the customer impact on this? Like, of course I did, you idiot. <laughs> it's annoying. The, all those stem from a mindset of I'm right, stem from the arrogance of certainty, not mm. curiosity. This person is closer to the problem than I am. They're probably, if I'm the leader, the manager, I'm not in the code. I didn't open the source code and I've been typing in that thing for the last two weeks like these guys have. I don't know how complicated it is. I don't know what the mm. risk of vulnerability is. These guys do. So, so you want to be curious. You're, oh, you don't have to agree, but you have to be curious. Oh, tell me about that. Mm. And then you can decide we're, we're going to stay on course or we're, we're okay, great. But it's after you've expressed curiosity mm. about it, what they're saying. And it's so easy to say, and it, it's so hard to do. Here's another moment when someone gives you feedback, when you just want to punch them in the face. <laughs> oh, okay. First of all, most people don't know how to give feedback very well, so that's mm -hmm. one minor problem. But unless you're asking for feedback, don't don't bother. Unless someone asks you for feedback, I wouldn't bother giving them feedback. Mm -hmm. But I would set a habit of asking for feedback. But someone and I do a keynote. Someone comes up to me, you know, there's a thousand people there, and they say, "Oh, can I give you some feedback?" I'm like, roll my eyes. Really? <laughs> how many speeches do you give? Whatever. Like that's what's <laughs> going through my head. And, um, and, and I try, and then you got to squelch that and you got to say, oh yeah, sure. Tell me, um, blah, blah, blah. But, um, that's the moment at the moment when you're triggered, it's the most important time to be curious, but it's one of the hardest. So mm. you just got to pause and then, uh, have, have, have the sentence preformed. Even just, hey, tell me more. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll, it, that's one of my things I use. I say just to buy time because you're like, what? And you're trying to process all this. And then like, okay, tell me more, blah, blah, blah. And then they're like, oh, wow, this guy's really interesting. Mm. You, um, you describe an old playbook and you, you bring to life the story of the El Faro. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The El Faro was this huge ship uh two football fields long it was a container ship and it sailed between florida and puerto rico and a northern port in florida and puerto rico and the straight line path takes it on the atlantic side of the bahama islands and in 2015 there was a hurricane forming in the atlantic that the ship knew about and the captain received the text even before they got underway by the previous a ship in the same company that had made just made the route. Hey, you you check it on this hurricane? Which way are you going to go? Because there's an alternate way to go. 
which takes you behind the Bahamas, but it's a little bit longer. It's about six hours longer. You burn more fuel, costs a little bit more. And the captain, without consulting anybody on his crew, says, no, no, we got it. We're, we're going we're gonna to go the straight way. And then they get underway, and the weather starts to worsen, and they're reading the weather reports. And we know what transpired because mm -hmm. the ship ends up sinking in the hurricane, but the government was able to find the ship and recover the black box. And like airplane black boxes, ships have black boxes. The cool thing about a ship's black box is it typically has a lot more conversation than an airplane's black box. So we have 500 pages of transcript of the El Faro as the crew is sailing into this hurricane. They know it's not an issue of knowing that there's a hurricane. And mm. when you read it, you just want to scream because you know these 33 people are going to their death. Why can't they divert? There's two, oppor there's two clear opportunities to divert and go behind the Bahamas. And you hear them talking about this decision. And when you and when you, when you just say, well, what are the patterns to the language? Why are they incapable of getting to the right answer here? To me, we're basically running a playbook. This is the way I feel about it. People are programmed to respond in certain ways. When I say, oh, can I give you some feedback? You're going to respond in certain ways. When I say, oh, I think that's the wrong answer. You're going to re respond. You're going to defend it typically. You're going to react, respond, reply. That's what I bet you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And so this playbook from the industrial age starts with obeying the clock, because that's why we have words like clockwork. That's why we pay people by the hour, is this relentless sense of, mm. of, of the ticking clock, and that puts stress on humans. And everything else then flows from this idea that we've separated the deciders from the doers, because now leadership is coercive. It can't. It can't help but being coercive because the idea is to get people to do something that they didn't choose to do. You chose to do because you're the decider and they're the doers or the other way around. So we comply. And so the program set of plays is what the problem is. And even if we say, oh, we're going to have an enlightened leadership approach, we're going to redraw the company org chart. The, the basic phrases that we use in the language still adhere to this old playbook. That this like blah 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 blah. Right? Here's another one. We we run meetings. Let's say it's a decision meeting. Should we launch the product? What do we do? Hey guys, we got to talk about this. Should we launch the product? Let's see what everyone thinks. And we and we make statements like, I want to make sure we get everything on the table, and then we're gonna vote. Well, guess what? It doesn't really matter that you said that. The fact that you discussed it first actually suppresses dissenting opinions. What you want to do is vote first. That'll be the moment where there's maximum variability. Remember, decisions are benefit from variability versus doing. Assembly line work views variability as the enemy. So industrial age places, which were like assembly line looking places, designed the organization to squeeze out all variability at every place in the organization, which we then apply to decision-making meetings. And then we say, well, where, where's all the innovation? The whole organization is designed to reduce variability of thinking. Mm. Mm. One of your other um, 
plays is about uh, prove versus improve. And um, within that, there was something that really stood out for me. It was um, expecting people. Why, so here's the question. Why is expecting people to prove themselves before you trust them backwards? Why is that backwards? Yeah. So <laughs> first of all, we got to talk about what is trust. Trust means that you believe they are trying to make the right decision. Okay. It doesn't mean they're making the right decision. Mm. When you talk about trust that way, then you can ask questions about the decision without challenging the trust. If, tr if you commingle, I believe you're trying to make the right decision and you have the technical mm. competence, the uh, observation skills, the clarity of purpose, all these other things, which will actually allow you to make the right decision. And maybe it's in a world where your decisions about the future, where it's actually unknowable, whether the decision will be correct. Then when I start asking questions about the decision, it pulls in the idea of trust, which is emotional, feels nasty. So you need to separate trust from the actual decision trust me that i understand you're trying to make the right decision now let's talk about it so so the idea is so my daughter's growing up and her bedtime's 10 o'clock and she wants to stay up to midnight so i say okay when you prove you can stay up to midnight we're going to change your bedtime to midnight that's basically what most managers do to their team. When you prove you're ready for greater responsibility, we'll give you more responsibility. But we're not giving you the opportunity to demonstrate greater responsibility. So what we have to do is we open the door we, to, to our thinking. We invite people to hire, it's almost imaginary. Well, what would you do if you were me? What would you intend to do? Just tell me what you intend to do. Now, I, because it's intent, it hasn't happened yet, so I can still veto it. So there's a safety net. But now I'm hearing this is what you would do. This is how you think through the problem. That's, and absent that, I don't, I don't get that opportunity. It's very, if I'm just telling you what to do, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is leaders trust first. They give the team the opportunity to demonstrate technical competence and organizational clarity in an, uh, in, to be honest, it's an imaginary way, intent. It's very real in that it feels like I have ownership and you do have ownership, but the, the leader can still veto. Mm. And for us, this is way powerful. We say take risk on people, not human nature. Why? Mm. Because people will respond differently when you, when, you, when you believe in them. Mother nature won't change her behavior. The laws of physics aren't going to change just because yeah, you know, let's like make this, let's make the wing a little bit shorter and, you know, we'll trust Mother Nature. No, that's not a good plan. <laughs> you, um, you, you took over Santa Fe when it had worst performance, worst morale. And you, you talk a lot about kind of intent, responsibility, autonomy. What difference does giving your people autonomy do to their morale? I read these articles that talk about engagement yeah, it's a buzzword these days. Uh, I wanted, the way I thought about it was I just needed my team to, I needed more thinking. Hmm. I can't just have me thinking and them doing. I needed everybody thinking. And there's like 12 ways to create engagement, six ways to create the top five things. 
to create here's a okay here's a secret there's only one step to creating engagement and it's the the only step and if you don't do that step nothing else you do will create engagement the step is give your people the authority to make decisions mm. they're engaged can't not be and if you don't do that it's all window dressing so the trick is exactly how much authority can you give them before you run off the rails somehow and how quickly can you increase the amount of authority that that you're giving them uh, and then you'll have a super engaged team mm, simple. <laughs> simple it's simple but it's not easy 100 uh, percent you, yeah. you you use these words and they really spark something in my mind. You said that you created a learning and competence factory. What is a learning and competence factory? We look at company. Um, we, we have some fun things we do with companies. For example, we'll look at their job descriptions and we'll say, we'll look at the words and the job, the verbs in particular and the job description, do, perform, collate, assemble, Mm. And we'll code these words. Are they red words or blue words? Are they doing words or thinking and learning words? And they're predominantly, as you can imagine, doing words. And you can map through the organization which positions have thinking words in them and which not. And we'll look at companies, say, we'll look at quarterly objectives. Do we're anywhere? Oh, well, we're, oh, we operate by OKRs. OK, great. Well, give me some examples. Well, we're going to improve. We're going to increase sales by this and throughput by that and quality by that. Are you going to learn anything? Uh, I don't, yeah, there's no learning. It's like a one dimensional thing. And so we always, our, our view is you got to, it's a two dimensional life. And so in one dimension, we're, we're doing the thing, but we're also trying to learn. So we encourage organizations to have learning objectives that supplement the doing. Not, not all learning, that's not a good way to go yet because the doing is the actual work, but just have one and I want to learn more about this and it should be like a scientific study we're gonna have a hypothesis experimentation data collection what are we going to learn mm. I'm um, I'm very grateful for your time I'm conscious of your time what else would you love to share about your your latest book leadership is language so one here's just one easy tip start your question with the word how one of the concepts in the book is uh, a concept called share a voice, which is among a team, how are the words allocated? If you just counted the words with no regard to long, short words, verbs, nouns, whatever they were, just count the words. It turns out that most teams have disproportionate sharing of words with the highest person, the highest paid person that follows the pay scale. The highest paid person is allocated the most number of words. And so on down there, and the and the steeper that skew is, the more fragile the team is because that means they're more deferential to the leader and they're less likely to speak up. And the 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 leader or the team making a decision is deprived of what the people at the low end of the scale know, the low end of the word scale. So you want to make the word you want to make that more even in a meeting so you can be attuned to it. But one very simple way to do it. When if I ask a binary question, someone comes up to me and says, I think we should delay product launch. Are you sure? No. Yes. It's one word. Versus, 
how sure are you? Or tell me more about that. But I like how sure are you? How likely is that to be true? How confident are you? Because now we get out of binary questions, it's impossible to do a binary question and it invites more words from them. How sure are you? Oh, like 99%, 99. I'm 99% sure. That's a lot different than 51% sure. But if you just say, are you sure? And they say, yes, what did you learn? Nothing really, I would say. Because yes is the implied right answer. Of course, they have to be sure. If they weren't sure, like I want them to say, no, I'm not sure. I'm like 80% sure. But if 20% if happens, it's really bad. Hmm. So start your question with how, uh, the next time you interact with your team, and then see how that changes the participation. And then zip it, by the way. Mm -hmm. Ask the question once, zip it. And then see how it changes the word count and see if you can get it to be more even. Mm, I'm really, really grateful for your time. I asked this question of, of all of my guests, and it's simply this. What does the phrase always better than yesterday mean to you? It means that we have this idea that we're not in a static world. And my skills and ability aren't static. And my brain is still elastic and I can learn and we can do better. And uh, I love it because it goes with the uh, improve, not prove play. And the way I think about it is the way I experience this is that there's two, I have two personas. One is what I call the be good self. And that be good self, that's the one that defends the ego. That's the one that gets uh, riled when I get negative feedback. That's the one that wants to prove, oh, look, I'm a good person in the world. I deserve um, my, my pay. I deserve my Twitter followers and whatever. <laughs> and then there's the get better self. And the get better self doesn't care about that stuff. The get better self says, I just want to be better. Yes, I want to be better tomorrow. I want to be better in six months from now than I am today. And the problem is the behaviors that the be good self wants will crowd out the behaviors of the get better self. You can't be both because one set of behaviors will crowd, they're the two different sets of behaviors. Mm. When you hear feedback, the be good self is gonna say, oh, no, no, let me explain. <laughs> the get better self says, oh, tell me more. Mm. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing your work. Um, and I'm really, really grateful. How can people connect and find more of your work? The easiest thing to do, go to YouTube. We got a channel called Leadership Nudges. It's typically a minute, minute and a half. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about some little snippet. Uh, of course, I'd, I'd invite you to check out the books, Turn the Ship Around and Leadership is Language. What and is a leadership nudge? A leadership nudge. Like, go to go next time you go to the restaurant, don't order. Uh, <laughs> Don't give feedback, invite feedback, play the 30 day feedback game. Every, every day, ask someone to give you feedback on something. Hey, how was I as a customer? Hey, how, how's the shirt? Hey, how's my driving? Hey, how did I show up in the meeting? Uh, start your questions with the word how. Run the meetings in the following ways. Uh, vote first, then discuss. When someone does dissent, embrace the outlier. So these are just little snippets. Mm, I love that. Thank you, David, for your time. Really appreciate it. Cheers, Ryan.
There we go, episode 105 with Captain David Marquet. As I like to do at the end of every interview session, is just to have a little bit of reflection around some of the things that have really stood out for me. And you can probably tell from my curious questions that I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, what am I going to reflect on? What do I really enjoy? I really like the language of vulnerability and curiosity. And I also really loved the sense of um, the be good self and the get better self. I think that was really well described by David and the differences around how they think and how they act. Um, fascinating. I wonder what really stood out and resonated with you. Let me know at ryanbhartley at gmail.com. Share it on your socials. Tag us, tag us both in. Um, let us know you've watched and, and, and maybe one or two of your key takeaways. If you're not in the We Are Always Better Than Yesterday community, head over to Facebook now. Make sure that you are with us and uh, go and check out some of the other Always Better Than Yesterday podcasts if you haven't uh, spent time with us before. There's so much other good stuff out there that will definitely help you in your heart and your mind, in your leadership and your mindset. Thank you for making it to the very end of episode 105 of the interview sessions. I hope that we'll spend time again uh, together very soon. I appreciate you. Always love, guys.